many years ago, I was uh, on a mission trip. I was a youth pastor, and I was on a mission trip with a bunch of teenagers. We were actually serving uh, with Pastor Barron. but not here in Bonaire. This mission trip, we went to Newark, New Jersey, where he served for many, many years. And uh, Newark, New Jersey is in the United States, but it's not Nashville where we came from. It was very much a cross-cultural experience for a bunch of white suburban teens from Middle Tennessee to go to the Ironbound District of Newark, New Jersey, very much a urban core kind of place. While we were there, We had one day off. We went into New York City, right across the river. Now this was the fun day. (laughs) And maybe for the students it was fun. I was trying to supervise six teenagers in New York City. (laughs) So that was more like work. Anyway, the reason I'm telling you all of this is because where they wanted to go for lunch was this place called the Hard Rock Cafe. Why is that so funny? So we went to the Hard Rock Cafe in New York City for lunch. The Hard Rock Cafe in New York City is the original Hard Rock Cafe. Now it's this giant franchise. I'm quite sure it's... Well, I'm quite sure all the original founders of the Hard Rock Cafe are rolling over in their graves about what it's become because it's a giant corporate commercial thing now, but... The reason I'm telling you all this is when we went into the Hard Rock Cafe, it felt funny to me. Have you ever had that funny feeling where something just seems spiritually out of kilter, off? Well, I I had that feeling. I don't have that feeling a lot, but I had it that day. And on the wall in big gold letters was this motto. What it said was, all is one. All is one. Well, I don't know why that would bother anyone. Does it bother you? It bothered me. 
it bothered me because I understand where that statement comes from. It comes from a sort of Eastern mystical view of the world that thinks everything literally is one thing. And that God is in the oneness of the universe. Well, and calling it God is really kind of misnaming it. Because in this spiritual view of the world, the oneness of the universe isn't God like the personal God we think of when we read the Bible. The eternally existing, all-powerful creator of everything and everything else exists that exists is not God, but is created by God. All of this spiritual philosophy is wrapped up in that three-word sentence. All is one. Because in Eastern philosophy and religion, my goal is sort of to become one with the universe. And when I die and my body goes in the grave, it becomes one with the universe. And when I become one with the universe in this way, I don't exist anymore. The universe is one. And I am not important. I don't even exist. My ultimate goal in this sort of philosophy is to stop existing. Now I'm starting to figure out where this philosophy might originate from. And why when I went into this place that at that time was still sort of serving the purpose of that philosophy in, with, you know, on purpose, it felt spiritually, eh. I don't want to use the word wrong, but off. And, you know, if you really stop and think about it, wrong is a perfectly good word. In the book of Ephesians, there's a very, very central idea that can be summarized in a single word. And we've gone through this idea, we've seen this idea, we've talked about this idea, we, it's been there all the time because it is the central idea of the book of Ephesians, and the word that for this idea is one. But when Paul uses the word one in the book of Ephesians, he certainly does not mean what the Hard Rock Cafe meant when they put all is one in big letters on the wall. It is something completely different. 
the biblical concept of one, of union. Jesus prayed in the great high priestly prayer, Father, that they may be one, just as we, well, that's not one, just as we are one. Now, grammatically, we are one is a sentence that doesn't make sense. Because we is more than one. And so, but Jesus is praying. He's saying, you and I are perfectly one, Father. The eternal Son is perfectly one with the eternal Father. Oh, and certainly that includes the eternal Holy Spirit as well. The three, the three. One. Now, we can talk about this a lot and we can, can't quite grasp what it is exactly we're talking about, but what the classic doctrine of the Christian faith is, is that God, the all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God who is the creator of all things that are not God, he thereby say we say he exists in a category all his own. There is nothing else in the category God. He is, by the clear statement of Scripture, the creator of everything. He is the only uncreated thing. He is the only thing with no beginning. All other things that exist began because he began them. That God exists eternally. There's nothing that caused him to come into being. He is the uncaused thing. He's the only uncaused thing because he caused everything else. That God exists eternally one God, one being, one essence, as the classics put it, one being eternally existing in three persons. And those three persons are one. There's nothing about being God that is not possessed by all three of the three persons of God. The Father is not more God than the Son or the Spirit. And yet the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Spirit. They're distinguishable, yet one. There's only one being, God. And that being eternally exists in three persons. And yes, we are in over our heads. But here's the thing about this one thing in the scripture. One does not eliminate 
many. In the one God, there are persons who live as one being in relation to another, one to another. So in the one, there's a one and an another and an another. It's hard to talk about this and think you're getting the point across. One does not... The fact that there's one God does not mean that there's no Father and no Son and no Spirit. Because they're all one. Yet, they are three persons. Now, I feel like if I just keep talking about this, we're all going to just get more confused. That might be true. And the reason we're talking about this idea of one is because it comes right to the surface in the text we're coming to today in the book of Ephesians. Last time we read the, the verse that says, I urge you, brothers, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then his summary statement on what that kind of walk is, is this, eager to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, in a hurry, ready at all times to watch after the unity, oneness, the unity of the Spirit. So what we've learned in the book of Ephesians is that the Spirit of God has created in the people of God a a unity, A unity that's based on our union with Christ. Where we have been told we were raised together with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. And we have been made one new man in him, one body. And that one body altogether was reconciled to God by the work of the cross of Christ. I know this is deep water. And this is the thing that Paul says is a walk worthy of our calling. That walk that is worthy of our calling is a walk that is always in a hurry to maintain that unity that is created by the cross and by the work of the Spirit in bringing us to faith in Christ, in uniting us to Christ. If you ask the question, how can I be a good Christian? The answer is, take care of your relationship to the other Christians. That's the answer of this text. It is to mar it is to walk in unity. We are one in the Spirit, and we pray that our unity will be restored. I'm not sure I really like the word restored because our unity is present and has been 
accomplished in the work of Christ. Yet, I do feel some gap between that reality and my experience. I don't always feel perfectly one with all of you. You. I am, and I am not yet. So it's an appropriate prayer. And so it's appropriate for us to walk in a way that preserves that unity. Well, where he goes next here is a list of ones. There's a list of things that are one. Or that there's only one of. Let's just read the list. And this is a simple declaration. This is not a commandment. This is a thing that is a fact. What we call in, in uh, exegesis school an indicative. It's something that indicates something that is true. It is not a requirement that we would call an imperative, a commandment. But this is what is true, a fact. Here we go. There is one body. Now, in the context of the book of Ephesians, that can only refer to the church. There's one. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So there's one body, one spirit, one hope. Then he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Do you notice that there's three things? One body, one spirit, one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all, through all, in all. You see, this is a threefold statement. They're parallels. This is a Trinitarian statement. There's a spirit, there's a Lord, which is a reference to the Lord Jesus, and there's God the Father. So there's three ones. And each of those has some ones that go with them. But there's one. One, 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 one. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Over all. Through all. In all. One. So I wanted to think about these one at a time, these three statements. Body, spirit, hope. This reminded me of chapter 1 in the book of Ephesians. If I look at verse 17, because this referred to this one hope of our calling. Yeah. In chapter 1, where Paul was giving his opening prayer to the book of Ephesians, he says, uh, I never stop praying in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. A what? A spirit of wisdom and revelation and in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you will know 
what is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? That you would somehow come to grasp the magnificent nature of the future God has in mind for his people. Hope is a positive expectation that we trust in. Hope is is faith aimed at the future. And so the Spirit in chapter 1 is opening our eyes to understand the hope. And the thing we might miss in chapter 1, though it is present, is that this is the thing we come to as one body. And so here in chapter 4, he says, one body, one spirit, one hope. And these go together. We might ask, who is the body of Christ? One way to answer that question is the body of Christ is the group of people born again by the Spirit to faith in Christ. We might say the body of Christ is the group of people that by the work of the Spirit operating in each of them individually and in them together as a group, by the work of the Spirit, the group of people who have their hope only in Christ. If I ask you, what gives you any idea that one day you might end up eternally in the presence of God in something you could call heaven? What is your hope of eternal safety, security, life? I only have one answer to that question. Jesus. Jesus Christ. If I show up at heaven, at heaven's gate, and they ask me, why should we let you in? I don't think they're going to actually do this, but suppose that happened, and they said, why should we let you in? I have only one answer. Jesus Christ died so I could come in. He invited me. I can't say anything about me. Not one thing. I can only say him. He is my only hope. The hope of this calling, the hope of our calling is Christ. The hope of our life together now is Christ showing up again as he has promised to do. This is our hope. And it is the Spirit of God who gives birth to this hope in the heart of every person who is a member of the one body, the body of Christ. And if the Spirit of God hasn't operated in this way, then that person is not a part of the body. Scripture says that very clearly in Romans chapter 8. If you don't have the Spirit, then you don't belong to Christ. One body, one Spirit, one hope. There's only one. Then he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
Now we have the strangest Lord of all lords, I have to say. Here in the body of Christ, we have a really strange Lord. He does not operate like any other Lord I ever heard of. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, where Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, the Father is honored when everyone bows down to Jesus. Lord, King of kings, and Lord of lords. But he is the strangest Lord ever. You can read about this in Matthew chapter 20, and there's parallel passages in the other Gospels. Where Jesus says, you know how the Gentiles are? They're rulers. You know how they rule? They lord it over. They place themselves above. They demand and require obedience. They lord it over. He says, well, here in the Jesus group, that's not how we do it. That's not how we do it. In fact, if you want to be important in the kingdom of God, you put yourself last, you make yourself the servant of all. I know it's not how anyone's ever done it before or since, but that's how we do it in this group. You make yourself the servant of all. You become what we like to call around here a leading servant. Not a servant leader. You hear the difference? I'll explain it to you sometime, but not now. You become a leading servant. And then he said this. He wasn't just telling us how we're supposed to behave. He said, even the Son of Man himself did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is not regular lording. Jesus Christ is Lord, but he is the generous Lord who serves, loves, saves, and redeems his servants. And at the end of his life, he says to his disciples, you know, I'm not calling you servants anymore. Servants don't know what their Lord is up to. But I've let you in on my entire agenda, so I'm calling you friends. Now, does that mean they're not servants of His anymore? No, because He's Lord of all, for all time. Can't be anything but that. He is Lord, but how does He Lord? He makes Himself a servant of all. If you say, who has best exemplified what Jesus said about being important by putting yourself last? Well, it's Jesus. He did that Himself. And when He put Himself last, we don't mean close to last, we mean last. We don't mean near the bottom, we mean below everyone. 
There is not a single person that He did not humble Himself in relationship to. That is the Lord. The one Lord. Our Lord. And He's not my Lord until He serves me. It's really weird. You know, in the foot washing thing, He comes to Peter and Peter says, this is not right. I, you should not be washing our feet. You're the master here. And what did Jesus say to Peter? If I don't serve you, you don't get me. You're not one of mine unless I serve you. The Lord is the servant of all. The one Lord. And that is how this becomes related to faith. You ever have a boss you would trust with your children? I mean, you might have had a boss you could trust with your children. Ever had a boss you could trust entirely? You ever had a Lord that you think always keeps your interests in mind? How do you trust the government? Your Lord. We live under, I don't know, how many different governments here in Bonaire? Lots of them. There's a Bonaire, there's a Dutch Caribbean, there's a king. I, I don't even understand any of it. There's a parliament. In the United States, we have three branches of government. And then we pretend that they don't rule us, but that we rule them. Here's something that doesn't often go with lords. Trust. In the regular world's way of lording, I don't trust the Lord. I don't expect Him to do what's best for me. I expect Him to order me around so that I do what's best for Him. And because he has authority or the power or whatever, then that's my situation and I just have to live with it. I do what the government says. I obey what the government, the rule says. If the king says, off with his head, off with my head. I don't, I don't expect even that the king will care what's good for me, except in some sort of vague general sense. This is not the way of our Lord. Our Lord has made Himself the servant of all, and so He is utterly trustworthy. I trust Him not because He's powerful. I trust Him because He loves me. And I can be confident in His love because He has humbled Himself beneath me. He has died a most horrible, agonizing death. He has, in one way or another, experienced this loss of the conscious of, I don't know how to talk about it even, this disruption in the relationship with the Father by dying, the agony of that my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He did for my sake, so that the Scriptures say, if God gave His Son for us, how will He not also freely give us all things? That person, that Lord, I trust. And that's different from the way I relate to the other lords in my life. Because He is the servant of all, Lord. One Lord. One faith. Then, baptism. <laughs> like, one baptism. And, you know, we're reading this glorious list and then we come to baptism. And I'm thinking, what is that doing in this list? One baptism? You know, I did a brief study this week of the word baptism in the New Testament. I could count a lot of different baptisms. This says there's one. And it's a project in theology to figure out what is the one and are the others that the Scripture mentions uh, part of the one or is it just just saying there's one that really matters? It can be confusing. Well, I want to give you a definition of the baptism that I believe this is referring to. It's referring to the sacrament of the church we call baptism. Or, if we're Baptists, we have to call it an ordinance of the church because we don't like the word sacrament, but whatever. It's that function of the church. Baptism. Baptism, baptism is not a function of individual Christians, just to be clear. You don't baptize yourself. Church baptizes you. Okay. It is the sacrament of the church. It is the sacrament of identification with the body of Christ. It is the formal recognition of our association. In the history of the church, it is the way in which a person becomes a member of the church. They are baptized. And what are we doing when we baptize someone? Well, the church is officially, formally recognizing that this person is born again of the Spirit and therefore one of us. That's what we're doing. Uh, I just want to read a few texts. Galatians. Galatians 3, 25. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now he's talking about the law as an instructor that brings us to Christ. And now that we've trusted in Christ, we're not under the same, that instructor anymore. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
So how did you become sons of God? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Enough said, right? For all of you were baptized into Christ. I'm sorry, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, is that telling you you have to be baptized to be born again? To be a saved person, as we might call it? No. It doesn't say that. It's saying we baptize you because you are born again. And when we baptize you, what we're doing is we're declaring you are and the church is declaring to each other and to the world around us, this one is one with us. We know he's one with Christ, and so he is one with us. See a similar thing in Romans chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's a very interesting statement where it says, by the Spirit or in the Spirit, you were all baptized into one body. So, what's going on in baptism? It's not just, it is this, but it's more than this. It's not just an individual Christian's declaration of his or her own faith. It is also the church recognizing that profession, and identifying with that person so that that person is one of us. Now, in the individualized culture of the modern church, we tend to make this about what an individual Christian does, but there's more to it than that. One baptism. We baptize those who trust in Christ, who are born of the Spirit. And our baptism is the outward recognition of a person's connection, not just to Christ, but also to the body of Christ by the indwelling Spirit. So on the basis of a person's profession of faith, the church formally receives a person into the church And a baptism is the ceremony of that. That's all. And so, it's appropriate in the context of Ephesians to talk about one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You'll notice the faith precedes the baptism. Now, I have completely run out of time and we're about halfway through what I plan to say today. I I wanted to talk to you today about baptism, but I also don't want you to get too distracted by all that. There's one baptism, and this is talking about a baptism that is a work of God, a work of the Spirit, a work of joining a person to the church, and a work of the church recognizing all of that be true. But what we are focused on in the book of Ephesians is more the one than the baptism. 
that we are one. There's one body, one spirit, one hope. You and I don't have different hopes. We share the same hope. There's one Lord, one faith in that Lord. One baptism that associates us all with him and with one another. We are the people who in our baptism declare Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, there's one. Now, since we're only about halfway through, uh, the point we're going to come to next time, there's one God, one Father, etc., etc. But where we started and where we're going to conclude is our unity does not erase each of us. We don't, in becoming one, I find my individual self, I don't lose it. Just as in the Godhead himself, the three persons of the Trinity are kind of defined in relation to the other persons. And who you are in the body of Christ is defined by your place in the body of Christ and in your relationship to Christ. So each of us has a place and our unity helps me understand my place. It's by being a participant in the one that I understand my own individual significance. And we're going to say a lot more about that because i got to stop now. But uh, next time, we're going to come to this. At the end of this one list, there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, over all, through all, in all. But <laughs> there's all this one, but, but grace was given to each one. That's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to be talking about that for a while because this is about how we are to operate as a body in the rest of chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians. We're going to stop here though. Father, thank you for this work you've done in each of us, in us together that we can be one. Lord, help us to understand our union with Christ by the Spirit and our union with one another in Christ. Lord, we want to be the new man together in Christ. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.